Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Marco. Sean. One, two, three, NFT. One, two, and three. web. And web. <laughs> What three? Yes, there you go. What three? I haven't figured out the two yet. Skills, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just I'm on, on the beta. I'm on the beta version. I'm, I'm still I'm on one and no idea what NFT is. Well, you know, you oh, know, Sean, boy. my relation with the acronyms is not is not the best. And you guys in cybersecurity, just it's you're fluent in acronyms, and uh, I just sometimes we, we I have to search it as we're yeah, you speak with that. That's right. And that's what we do here. This is not redefining cybersecurity, Sean. It's sorry, no. uh, no, not your cup of tea, but it is because you you have been part of many conversation in redefining cup of NFT society. <laughs> cup of NFT, NHL, <laughs> NFL, NHL. I like the NHL yeah. too. All right. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so, what are we talking about here today? Is uh, something that. Uh, you know, as many other things, we we read headlines. Uh, if somebody read about technology or follow technology account, uh, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, Web 3.0. And we would like to know today a little bit of the basic of what, what is this Web 3.0? Why is it, is it like, you know, a new Terminator? Is it a new version <laughs> of the Terminator or is something that is actually going to, it's not as scary and it's going to help us to have a better internet. I have no idea. Do you, Sean? I, I know enough to be dangerous and uh, I don't like to be dangerous. I want to be safe. Okay. So we, we've asked somebody to help or, or let's play actually, somebody, somebody, <laughs> let's play safe. somebody offered to help and we're like, yes, please help us understand yes. this. Uh, this come mess. on. We were like, Connor, come on. Come on. Come on, Connor Borrego. Connor Borrego, he's with us. He's probably wondering how, how and when do I get to join this conversation. 
Yeah, I'm not really sure about the editor. Marco, Sean, you guys have this great rapport, and it's kind of hard to interrupt. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We we take these two minutes where people are like, okay, what the hell are they talking about? This is not even the weirdest one, just to be honest with you. I mean, this this was pretty linear. (laughs) But this this is the time that we, we pass the ball to you, we pass the mic to you, or what they call it, the pack. Yeah, how about that? We'll pass it to the okay. pack. And uh, you introduce yourself. And again, the topic Web 3.0, NFTs, NHL, and all those acronyms. So welcome to the show. A little bit about yourself. Thanks so much for having me, both of you. Um, so like you said, I'm Connor Borrego. I'm based out of Kansas City, Missouri. And I have a startup called Unipro. It is a crypto wallet for your social media data, and I can get into that, but it's related to NFTs and Web3. Um, But primarily what I'm doing is I'm helping musicians open up new streams of revenue, as well as helping them to grow their audience and increase their visibility online. My background is that I went to the University of Michigan. I studied political science and entrepreneurship. Indirectly, that led me into advertising technology where I ended up at Google and I was coaching startups to play anywhere between $500,000 and $5 million a month on their advertising spend. And ultimately, because I worked with a lot of small businesses and had to tell them no, um, it kind of turned me off quite a bit to working there and I set off on my own. Uh, I also got a master's during my time at uh, Google uh, with background in data science for business intelligence. And so that's kind of where this project all started for me. But I know we're here to talk about Web3, NFTs, blockchain, uh, everything about this emerging technology, which, you know, I am certainly no expert on, but I am working with it day to day. So, you know, I I definitely have a a good visibility on it compared to most people, I would say. But um, let's start by tackling the really, uh, really ugly acronym in the room, which is NFT, (laughs) short for non-fungible token. And once you get past that super cumbersome, you know, name or string of words, um, you know, as we were saying, you know, cybersecurity professionals love their acronyms, but it, it seriously is just a serial number for a piece of media that lives on the internet. Um, and it just happens to be in this sort of decentralized internet powered by the blockchain, which would be, you could consider as a competitor to cloud-based technologies like Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud. Um, What Web3 is ultimately getting at is that Web2 companies, as they're known, like Facebook and Google, make the majority of their money by reselling consumer data and small business data for a profit. And Web3 is saying, if there was a way for us to return ownership of the data back over to the user, they would either be able to choose to opt into that monetary system or remain private while they're operating on the internet without losing any of the modern convenience of the internet and the applications that are provided upon it. So that's kind of, for me, how I see Web3 technologies is a reinvention of the way we interact with applications. Instead of me logging into Facebook and having all of my data preloaded there, I would log into it every time with something like a USB that had all my data on it, but still allowed me to use the application and share that with my friends, family members, and coworkers, or whomever else I might be interacting with on their platform. 
Well, uh, let's scratch everything. Let's talk about music instead. How about okay. that? No, I'm kidding. I mean, but we we could. We could because I, I really like that, what you mentioned about what you do with musician because we, you know, we, we love that. So maybe another conversation. Let, let's stick with the... Um, the the web 3.0 so mm -hmm. from what you said i don't see anything wrong with that i mean why not why not having my own uh data why not bring it with me why not ask facebook ask facebook <laughs> why not well, exactly so <laughs> so here here you go you know like some people there there is two side of this you know mm -hmm. some people are like yay wonderful great manifesto um where do i sign Let's go right. there. Other are like, no, nah, it's just marketing. And I can name a couple of names that tweet a lot. Uh, one of them, Elon, and say, nah, it's just all marketing. So mm -hmm. wh wh where does the truth lie? So I think it's like with any technology, right? When we're taking it to market, there's a lot of things that go wrong because people are experimenting with the way in which they can make money off of it. So I think with what we're seeing with NFTs today, right, they're treated as these digital collectibles or a registry for recording physical collectibles or high value assets uh, to a public notary service, which is the blockchain. Um, and so because of the non-fungible token, the NFT, right, we have this uh, tool that we can use to uh, have a crowdsourced version of verifying ownership of that digital asset that doesn't necessarily compromise, you know, the, the person who is actually behind that ownership, only if they choose to showcase that they're the owner, uh, it, it's their choice. Uh, but the data itself is secure because of the blockchain protocol that's being used to essentially encrypt the data and register it to this shared database that we're all working off of. And so this is a really powerful tool for software developers because the majority of the applications, software systems they're building today are built up off of these unique identifiers, but the unique identifiers are unique to each individual organization, whereas the data that's being recorded might be shared across multiple organizations. So there's uh, you know some struggle with coordinating that if you're a small business owner per se, and you're using multiple different software applications, but you're trying to identify which ones are driving value for your business and which ones aren't, you have to find a way to bring all of that data intelligence together. And that's a very cumbersome process that requires a unique skill set that a lot of small business owners don't necessarily have today. But getting back to your main question, which is, <laughs> you know, is, is this all Fugazi in a way, right? Um, there are a lot of bad actors in the space currently. And so some are saying that regulation needs to come in in order to kind of tamp down on sort of the Ponzi schemes that are almost emerging from these collectibles that are being traded up um, in, in sort of a mimetic fashion. Um, but there are others that are saying that, you know, that is, you know, allowing people to congregate, to come together, to share value in new novel ways that they haven't before. And so it's kind of increasingly difficult to distinguish sincere projects from insincere projects in the space. Um, and so regulation could potentially stifle some amount of innovation there. But I think is, ultimately- isn't it, Connor, quickly, isn't it supposed to be unregulated? Isn't that like the promise of, well, certainly- That the is the promise and, of the technology, but yeah. Sean, you're, you're absolutely right. That's the promise of the technology. 
I think the reality of the world we live in isn't necessarily always in line with our ambitions. Um, and, and so what you'll see is platforms that, and, and maybe this is a discussion to go into, but I always have this uh, dilemma around proof of stake versus proof of work, which I think proof of work protocols, which are the very energy intensive ones like blockchain, uh, not blockchain, Bitcoin, uh, that people are always talking about the, the emissions related, the energy consumption that goes into securing that network. Um, but a lot of that security protocol is what enables the decentralized mechanism, whereas some of the competing alternatives like the concept of proof of stake is all about delegating, uh, delegating basically your, um, your validation uh, process to a third party which would be introducing another intermediary to provide security to the network. So I, I, I don't really understand how proof of stake necessarily uh, is an improvement on our existing database systems uh, because it, it seems like a roundabout way to accomplish the same thing. Um, and ultimately, uh, I think that there is a lot of valid criticism on the proof of work side of things because of the energy intensive nature of securing that network, um, but at the same time, it, it serves a valid purpose, which is ensuring that users have control and trust over that data and that they don't have to rely on a third-party intermediary. But that's just around governing the data that's being stored and how it's being stored and how it's being processed. Um, I think where regulation probably is more realistically gonna come into play is more in the intermediary platforms that are bringing consumers onto the networks. Um, while consumers have the capability to generate their own keys, private and public, in order to operate with the blockchains directly, I think that there is a technological literacy that you know isn't isn't it like necessarily within reach for the average consumer, and that they're going to require intermediaries to kind of hold their hands and onboard them, something like a Coinbase. And in those instances, uh, with a centralized party like a business providing those services to consumers, you could e very easily see regulation emerging as a result of that. Um, and with some high profile, you know, blow ups with a lot of these centralized finance platforms that are, you know, basically facilitating the sale and exchange of decentralized tokens, um, you know, you're, you're kind of seeing calls or reasons for that because they did things that banks are required to do that they're operating much like a bank but not doing and led to the financial risk that is now falling backwards on them because it was like their fundamental assumption is we'll be in a bull market forever the numbers are only ever going to go up so we don't have to consider the downside and now we're seeing the repercussions of what happens when the numbers go down and real consumers are being hurt by their lack of, you know, planning or risk mitigation. So one comment and then one question. Um, the comment is, you mentioned your background is in political science, so it's mine. Mm -hmm. So I, when you say, you know, the, the, we're going to, we're going to take down the government because fuck the government, sorry <laughs> for the, but then we're going to need a government anyway. So we're just going to go ahead and rebuild it because we, we need another social contract or another entity that controls society. So that's that's a never ending story. Like after a revolution, usually we just go into something else. Hopefully better, but it's still going to be really related. So that's that's a comment. Feel free to add on that. My other one is 
as you mentioned, the user may already be quite confused right now from this conversation. And we're putting another man, woman, something in the middle. Mm -hmm. So we facilitate that. So don't we risk to just, again, transfer the power from who has the power now mm -hmm. to someone else that has the power? And, and what does it really mean, honestly, for me and you and anyone else that is going to use the internet in a different way? So I actually hear both your questions is kind of wrapped up in being the same in some ways. Um, yeah, made it easy. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you phrasing it multiple ways because um, it helps me think through this. So I want to say that I, uh, I don't feel like I can publicly say fuck the government or whatever, even though that might be a, you know, a viewpoint that I espouse at times. But <laughs> it was more a punk statement for me. It wasn't really like, yeah. Yeah, I, I respect it and appreciate it. So, um, I don't know where I stand on those things, but I do know that like the government is more likely to meddle and get involved with something that is harming consumers that are under their care currently. And while decentralized internet does make this promise that we could you know, facilitate our entire economy using a system like this, independent of the government, I think there are other government services that uh, exist in the real world that can't necessarily be replicated online. And so there's going to be some sort of medium ground, and I'm not sure what that looks like, but I have my own vision for what that could be. And like, I'd be happy to share that, which is I see the point of if everything is a balance between maximizing decentralization and maximizing centralization, right, to either have complete control over a system or allow chaos and a natural structure to emerge, then the question becomes, how do we find the balancing point where we can maximize, or maximize the points of decentralization? And so I think that a parallel that exists in our current economy that works uh, kind of well to that effect are community banks. And I think community banks do a lot of growth for basically the local communities in which they operate because they help small businesses access loans and funding that's propped up on the economy of the local community and the community which banks with them. Now, I think there are a lot of shortcomings of that system currently, like essentially how old a lot of their technology is and the types of things they can offer their customer, uh, which is not competitive compared to what national or international banks are able to offer. But I think that if we were able to conceive of a system where these community banks provided digital asset custody and digital asset management to their, to their members, uh, we could actually maximize these points of centralization to create a decentralized distribution that's based on local populations. And what that would require is local banks to hire data scientists and different cybersecurity professionals to come in and essentially take over the custody management of users' digital assets and provide them a, a familiar you know, password-based login process, but they act as intermediaries. And by not centralizing all of that data into one location, um, you know, while isolated communities could potentially be attacked, uh, there'd be a lot more, uh, there'd be a lot more capability, I think, in that, or a lot more resiliency in that system uh, to restore uh, any loss or damages that occur um, and I think we'd also be able to prevent a lot of 
errors that consumers and users are likely to make in a system where they're required to keep track of this super important password that's hard to remember, um, you know, and and basically avoid the you know the financial ruin that would come from losing a password like that. Um, because if all of your systems locked up in one vault online and you lose the password, you know, that doesn't seem like a very efficient system to me either. Um, and so I think, you know, that's just my idea of how I would approach a problem like that. Um, but I'm also a big proponent of, you know, the power of local governments to actually affect change in communities compared to, you know, sort of policy at the federal level. So Connor, I don't, can you take me on a journey and maybe, I don't know if journey is the right way to put it, but I'm trying to map what you just described to somebody like my dad when, mm -hmm. and his, his life. Maybe, sure. yeah, I, I mean, I won't use his examples, but anyway, let's just say there's a person, they have a house. There's mm -hmm. a physical deed of, of owning that house, right? That's, that's yep. the physical world of that. Um, somebody might have savings. Somebody might own gold. Somebody might have a collector piece of art. Somebody might have a watch that's appreciated to hundred grand. Sure. These, these things that we have around us, um, we might choose to put some in a safe deposit box. We might put some in a safe at home. We might, uh, I don't know, other places, right? Where do you store mm -hmm. your deeds? I don't know. So I guess what's, how does that equate to what you're describing from a digital asset perspective? What's the opportunity for the general consumer to do something in the digital world that replaces what they're doing or perhaps augments and supplements what they're doing. So I would, I, I would say that I think it augments stuff. And so if a person like your dad, um, you know, just to use the physical deed as an example, a physical deed is, you know, one of one, right? But um, if you lose that deed, there's probably someone else who's got your recorded ownership so that you could get another copy of it. Or, and that's usually like, I think it's the local county that usually records that, but uh, I'm not good on real estate, so I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, it would just provide you another avenue to record that ownership in the case of the deed. But for someone like your dad, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he was on Facebook, because I know that a lot of people are on Facebook and that doesn't, you know, tend to span any particular generation. And I think that digital assets, uh, you know, when defined in the context of normal assets is very narrow. But when you think about um, digital assets being sort of your breadcrumb trail of activity online, um, you know, if you think about each individual bit, it becomes sort of cumbersome and hard to imagine. But if you think of that as culmination of your activity online as your digital identity, that is an asset that's financially valuable. And we know this because we can look at the data economy or even just the subsection of the data economy that I'm familiar with, the advertising economy, and we know that the advertising economy generates uh, hundreds of billions of dollars a year on the sale of your digital identity in order to place advertisements in front of you. Um, and right now, those systems, you know, kind of operate where they're utilizing your digital asset, one, without your consent, but two, they're not even really cutting you in on it. They're providing access to their platform, which is more of a mechanism for them to farm and collect that data from you than anything. Um, and so I think for someone like your dad, it'd be like, I don't know if, you know, if it's only $2,000 a year, like the media tends to quote, 
Um, I think that, you know, really your digital identity is probably worth tens of thousands of dollars a year to each individual. And um, I don't know about you, but your dad, I'm sure, could utilize an extra couple thousand dollars a year, probably even just in his portfolio or, um, you know, wherever else he would want to redistribute that earnings uh, from the income of his digital asset. Um, and I think that's true of most consumers today. So let, let me let me add to that instead of. Still, my dad that doesn't even want to put a credit card online, <laughs> um, but he's pretty good with the iPad, so I, I give it that. So, you you are in Europe, and you got this pop up window all the time, uh, kind yeah. of annoying because they make them annoying on purpose. It's kind of like a dark user yeah. interface, right? Uh, and uh, you know, it's like. Yeah, well, do you want us not to sell this stuff? You, you know, there's a right to be deleted, forgotten, whatever you want to call it. So I'm envisioning in this web 3.0 where you, you have your identity, you, you log out from Facebook, and your data is not there anymore. So I'm, si I'm simplifying it a little too much, and then I go and log in somewhere else, and here you have my data, but you can only see it while I am on it. And then there you go. I'm disappearing again. Is it something like that? I would say it's pretty, pretty close to that, basically. But in the moment in which you're going on that platform, right, and sharing that data uh, directly with Facebook, they would then potentially be have the ability to save it to their servers. So nothing really changes in that specific instance. Now, um, what could change, though, is let's say uh, Facebook was willing to actually pay you for that data, right? Um, when you logged on the platform, you wouldn't have to necessarily share your entire demography with them. You could just be like, nope, here's my user profile. That's really the only thing you need to link to my posts. You don't get to know anything else about me. Uh, and you could shield that information uh, because the only thing that would be required is your Facebook username or your Facebook unique ID um, in order to map any and all content you were producing to put on that platform. Mm -hmm. um, the rest of your information beyond essentially the breadcrumb trail of browsing, um, you, need, you need to layer it with additional information to give your data context um, so they can better understand why it is you're taking the behavior that you're taking on their platform. And so if you're withholding that, uh, you know, it wouldn't necessarily live in their system. Now, they might have legacy data about you because you can't really take that back. Maybe in Europe you can because of the laws there. But in the United States, that's not really an option <laughs> and unlikely to ever be one. Yeah, yeah. No, I or as you said, they could say, "Well, I'll give you ten bucks for each piece of data you give me, and mm -hmm. that's that's at least I get paid for <laughs> giving you my data, right?" Well, we already so. trade our identity for coffees and things like that, so may as well get. Yeah, notes. there are, there are some horrible stories there already, and and I I always make the joke that. You know, somebody steal your identity. I mean, how many times? What are you going to change your identity? <laughs> it's like it's out there, it's out there. So, but, but it's nice to think that that could be a possibility where, like, okay, at least I'm somehow in control of it. Well, I wanted to stick with the, the identity as an asset for a moment, just <laughs> because it, it's not, I think you touched on a little bit the context of what you're doing, your behavior. So it's not just my address and right. that that I like certain bands or or that I like hockey or whatever um, it's 
every single action I'm taking, how long I stay on a page, where my eyes are tracking on the page if I'm through going through a, an iPad or something like that. All of that metadata as well. And I don't know, can you help folks understand just the, that whole concept a little bit? That it's, it's everything about what they're doing, not mm-hmm. just uh, their personal information that they would normally think they have that's on their credit cards yeah. or their IDs or whatever. Absolutely. Um, but essentially when you're logged into an application, right? Um, you know, the first thing that they want to know are different identifiers about yourself because what they're able to do is to group you into people like you. And so it starts with your demographic information. Where do you live? How much money do you make? What race and ethnicity, what level of education, there's some pretty standard stuff, but I think the Census Bureau does a great job of covering kind of the major buckets. Once you have that information, what each different platform or app or website that you use has is a context for why you're using it. So in the case of Twitter, for example, it's a microblogging platform, but it's one that's owned by Twitter. So that allows you to put out you know, anywhere between one and 240 character idea maybe in succession, maybe with an image, maybe with a video. But what they also have is all of the different individual users that you're connected with. And of those users, which ones, when you share their posts, when you comment on their posts, when you click on their posts, how much time you spend scrolling your feed, every single time you refresh to get another 20 tweets on your screen, they know, and they're keeping count of that. And the reason for all of this is they're trying to assess how much value they can earn from all of those activities that you're doing within their environment and how much they can earn in context to your digital identity, right? Because that demographic information that you bring is kind of the bulk of your digital identity, you know, as well as the rest of the web and internet that you interact with. But with concern to the platform that you're on at that specific moment, right? Twitter makes money by selling ads to advertisers and they're trying to place those ads in front of you. So the more efficiently they can do that, the more money they make because they can charge high prices to get that ad in front of you. um, And they can use all of this data about how you're interacting with the platform to figure out what that's worth and whether or not you're likely to care that that ad's in front of you because the advertiser is only going to want to spend money with Twitter is if their ad works. So they have to be able to make sure that they can get their advertising message in front of the right audience and the right people. And that comes down to, are you an engaged user on the platform who's likely or has in the past interacted with ads? And then do you fit the demographic profile of who this advertiser is trying to target. And so it takes that intersection of both those data points, the context of being on Twitter and what you do on Twitter, plus your personal background, in order for them to effectively put that ad in front of you to earn a profit. Yeah, I think you you explained that very, very well. And and I think that what Sean was hinting at is not just who you are, but it's what you do and then how you can change as you mature, your tastes change. Your data today is not the same data that you have 10 years from now. Maybe you're a different person in a way. Mm-hmm. So just to, to wrap 
around and, 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 and turn around in the circle and reconnect. So what, what would change on the web 3.0 of what you just described? So there are a couple of different facets that could change. None of them are guaranteed to change. And I think this gets back to what you were saying earlier about like, is this really going to be a new internet? Is this going to democratize things or not? And so when you look at, for example, Twitter, right? And Elon Musk's desire to purchase Twitter, he wants to do that so it can be the first, you know, blockchain native social media platform with, you know, 400 million users. But ultimately, he would turn Twitter into your crypto wallet for your personal information, right? Um, and he, the first platform that would be built would be the Twitter protocol. And Twitter would allow you to do everything that Twitter allows you to do today. But if you wanted to, and someone created, you know, the Zuckerberg platform, which was just a satirical version of Facebook, you know, maybe you could take all of your tweets and plug them into this other app. You could take all of your followers and plug it into this other app. And if they come to that other application, they wouldn't have to look it up and find you. They would already be following you. And so it's just more about this idea that instead of the data belonging to the platform, the data belongs to you and you choose what platform you want to display it on. And in that choice, you would probably be agreeing to whatever the financial monetization you know, basically the process in which that platform monetizes. And so you would get the choice to whether or not to use that platform in that way. And so maybe they're paying you for those tweets or they're paying you to show ads on your tweets, or maybe they're just paying you to access your demographic information so they could do exactly what they're doing now. Um, but it would be without the friction of being so tied to Twitter that if Twitter decided no, we don't want you on here anymore, you wouldn't lose all of your data or your audience because that's incredibly valuable to you. That's a part of your digital identity that you don't actually own today. And a lot of people call this your social graph. And so this is one of the ways that it could make your social graph more resilient um, while you're operating online. I like awesome. that. Sorry, just a quick comment. Yeah. I, I like that to have people become knowledgeable and realize that they do carry a value. It's not just something they give away. It's something that they should have. So, so sorry, Sean, go for it. No, there's so many questions. I don't, even, I don't even know where to go. Um, so much to cover. I, I'm going to have to have another conversation. Uh, so I, let's start here. You're, you're talking about these platforms and then Web 3.0, it isolates the person's assets from the platform so it can transfer around if, mm -hmm. I, if I summarize that well enough which is different than the data being on a platform and perhaps even multiple platforms and non-platforms where I guess my point is a lot of our data is just on the current web right mm -hmm. not in Twitter and right. there are companies that uh, that make money scouring the web for our information mm -hmm. to provide credit scores or to provide uh, loans and things like that, right? So I'm wondering, how does that change in the web? So world? I think, again, do they coexist, every, the two the two networks? 
I think on some level, yes, they will coexist. And I think that there is going to be this legacy or transition period between Web 2 and Web 3 that's going to exist, I don't know, at least for the foreseeable future, right? Because, you know, like I said earlier, Facebook and Google aren't going to willingly give up their data. They have no reason to. Um, and even if we're talking about, you know, the the third party companies that make tons of money by reselling and buying data in illicit manners and coming up with all sorts of, I don't know, I would say psychologically manipulative ads to get users to give up, you know, more information and not even realize it. Um, yeah, I, I think that that industry is going to continue to persist in some ways. Um, but if users were to choose to operate solely from a browser like Brave, right? Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Brave browser, but I you don't know. know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, the Brave browser, right? It, it, it itself is a crypto wallet. Um, and it acts as sort of this shield while you're going to a lot of these Web2 properties. Now, any information that you put willingly onto their platform isn't going to be protected by this, right? But your IP address and things like tracking you between site to site, uh, that's where the, the crypto wallet and Web3 can add immediate value for people today. Um, is that sort of that type of tracking mechanism. And that is where quite a bit of these third party data points are being sourced from presently, in addition to sort of like those, I don't know, phishing style advertising placements that sort of manipulate users or viral trends that sort of manipulate users in ways they don't realize. But um, I think what will happen, right, is that users are going to pick and choose what properties on the internet they're willing to share what amounts of information with. And I think the, we'll simplify what that looks like to a way where it's not cumbersome and, you know, sort of like a burden on the consumer to do those things. Um, but Brave Browser is kind of giving a peek into what that could look like in the future. Uh, because what they're doing is they're wrapping that data for you and providing a shield when you're interacting with these other properties. And so I think that the more that it acts as a shield that you can then plug into the properties, you can then have control over where that data is going to exist. But because the algorithms that we, that power the internet today are so dependent on recency bias, they need a constant stream of new data about you. And so if you start operating with this wallet shield sort of between you and your information over time, what they know about you and what they're able to predict about you and how that influences things like your credit score are going to diminish because it's going to go outside the bounds of being a statistically significant data point for being a predictor of any of those things that they're trying to use it for. And so I think that, you know, as people opt into a Web3 system, we will slowly transition away from that. Um, but what would that look like in practicality? It may just look like, websites that are require you to log in with some minimum amount of information with your wallet before you're able to access the content. Um, and they may even do that in exchange for some amount of money. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's going to probably create gates around the internet. And hopefully it's not paid to play gates, but you'll probably see quite a bit of that as well. I, I love that. And I, it kind of makes me think about the, the, the change that could happen in on a societal, societal level, and, and I'm connecting and my last question. <laughs> I, I like what you said about the communities 
that can come into place into help, you know, like decentralize, which just remind me the original internet, all right, you know, one, one computer goes down, the other works, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, like this community, I'm not going to say go down, but, you know, it could be a little note that we, we can re, you know, adjust and fix. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like, I, I like that thought because we, we always think about globalizing everything. And I think that is important to bring it back to be global, but at the same time to be local. So yeah. I, my last question is about small businesses. I feel yeah. like the small businesses, and I know you're passionate about that. So right now the small business, if it wants to use the data, it has to go through their Facebook, their Google, and pay them money to do an AdWord campaign or whatever it is. I can see with you carrying your own data around and make it valuable, maybe can we bring back into play the small businesses to actually have a role into this as well? What's your take on that? Yeah, so I actually think small businesses stand to benefit the most from this system. Um, and I think about it in two stages. So there's one or, or, or two parts. So there's one that you already hinted on around the advertising data. And this is the one that got me to quit Google and made me so upset while I was there. But ultimately, the advice I would need to give to the majority of small businesses is don't advertise on Google, go directly to Yelp. And the reason I'd say that is because Yelp has scale amounts of data that allows them to buy up their customers, the small businesses' customers, for 30% less, right? And so that is a huge amount of money to a small business owner in terms of their advertising efficiency to have to pay a premium to access the same customers simply because they do not have the scaled data sets behind it uh, to support any sort of statistically significant predictions in the ad algorithm and then have to be paying that premium as a result. And so I couldn't necessarily tell them not to advertise with Google and just go straight to Angie's List, go straight to Yelp because it'll be cheaper for you in the long run, uh, even though that is the truth, um, just by nature of the job role I was in. And so I found that frustrating. So one of the major things that I saw is uh, if, for example, a bunch of carpenters, maybe not even local, but like distributed nationally decided to create a website together and put all of their lead form data onto one website and just call it, I don't know, the, I, did I say contractor or electrician? I'm not sure, but like, let's say it was electrician, but all these electricians put all of their ads on one platform together and then they distributed the leads, you know, naturally they could basically save 30% on their advertising, even though they're supplying their competitors with intelligence. But I think that extends to all of their business operations. Um, and this is kind of what I was getting back to was if we are utilizing Web3, which is this idea that you own and manage your data, right? You need a place to centralize it. And this is something that's emerging for small businesses today is the idea of business intelligence systems that connect their different software platforms together so that they can have a holistic view of their digital operations. And so advertising online is just one small part of their entire business that has a bunch of different softwares and digital components that need to come together. And that crypto wallet that would be managing their business data could put that into a single place and it would serve the same purpose as a business intelligence warehouse because you could create standard data sets uh, for standard functions that all small businesses have, like a CRM or, you know, like your advertising platforms for channel analysis 
Um, you could be looking at uh, your accounting software, right? Like you're going to have pretty much standardized financial statements at the end of the year. We can pretty much standardize what those inputs look like for a lot of people. And so often you're just choosing software as a skin that sits over top of that data. And where that becomes valuable is again, not just in the advertising use cases, but all the places where you know, we could pool small businesses data together for a collaborative approach to intelligence um, because it takes you know, massive scale volume in order to derive insights from it um, that small businesses just simply can't do on their own. And we see this you know, from basically people like uh, McKinsey who go out there and essentially do this type of work for large businesses who have the data sets to kind of you know, do stuff like that but crypto provides a new mechanism for these small businesses to competitively pool their intelligence in a way that doesn't necessarily harm their operations, but does improve the efficiency of them or could theoretically, at least co-op. I love it. Co-op farmers, right? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Co-op. Yeah. I like that. All right. So, uh, First of all, thank you for clarifying a lot of things and to for making us think. I literally I've thought about things that you know I haven't I haven't got there before. So thank you for that. That's uh, our goal with our conversation. We always say if we, we we may not have answer for our audience, but if we make them think, I think we had a good conversation, which I strongly believe we did. So we didn't talk about NHL. We didn't talk about NFTs. But we talk a lot about the Web 3.0. So if you want to come back, I would love to have you back to talk about those other topics. And um, up to you. I, I would love to come back. I really enjoyed the conversation with both you, Marco, Sean. Like, this has been awesome. So, I mean, as long as you guys don't think I'm ranting too much, I'd be more than happy to try to take my take yeah. my turn at explaining some of that other stuff in more detail. As well. uh, absolutely not. I mean, uh, this is oh, still this is part cool. of the recording. So at this point... We have your word. We invited you. We gotta <laughs> have you back. Also, I really, too. I really want to hear your your thoughts on um, NFTs and uh, and the, the music industry and and what Sean and I are very passionate about arts in general. So that's that's yeah. one of the things we like about NFTs. But right now we're gonna close this one. We will have uh, links to your uh, to your social media. If you have some resources you want to share, we can put it in the podcast notes. So feel free to do that. And to everyone else, uh, thank you for listening to this conversation. We hope you get something out of it. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Sean. And we'll be redefine society next time. And then yep. the next time. And then the next time. It's TFN321. <laughs> you got some kind of acronym. Well, just, all right. right. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io.
hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.